Uh, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. And then I want to turn to Revelation chapter 21. So, first of all, verse 20, we are in this great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've come to verse 20 now this morning. So, verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted, that's God, who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now, if you'll turn over to the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So the second last chapter, chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, just the first four verses. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle John writes and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And may God bless to us the reading of His inspired Word. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank You that we gather together to hear Your Word. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, and we desire this morning that all of us, gathered in your presence, in your sight, might know Christ, might believe the gospel, might know the joy of sins forgiven, and what this great passage which is before us means to us. So help us to understand these things, we pray, and how we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior, our Lord, risen from the dead, exalted at your right hand, and for all the things that he is accomplishing and shall accomplish to bring you all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name, then, that we pray and ask these things. Amen. I want to uh, direct your attention this morning to these verses, 20 through 28, 
Because the ultimate aim of the Apostle in these, uh, in these verses, the Apostle Paul, is to demonstrate that God is all in all. You can see that at the end of verse 28, that God may be all in all. Or as I have put it, that God is everything. God is everything. When Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, he tells the Colossians that Christ is all and in all. Now we discover here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul's in unfolding, unpacking this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead uh, says that one day, ultimately, we're going to get to this place where God is everything, where God is all and in all, that God is all. Now, we read this passage from the book of Revelation, the great book of Revelation, chapter 21, and the Apostle John tells us in that great chapter, in verse 4, that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. God is going to do that, and then the consequence in, in connection with that is that death will be no more, and then he goes further and says, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain anymore. So God is going to wipe away every tear from every believer's eyes in that future day. And that, I think, surely proves to each one of us that this doctrine of resurrection is actually true. Because what is God going to do in a future day in glory in heaven? He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there'll be no more crying, mourning, no such thing like that anymore. And that verse, I think, is just simply pointing out to us that yes, there is such a thing as life after death. But it's not life after death as perhaps the philosophers might say, you know, Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, who posit that it's possible that there's life after death, but they have no authority, no real uh, uh, reason for saying such things, but they believe that there's life after death. The idea that there would be a body uh, alive after death was something foreign to them. It was much more of a, uh, a, a, a spiritual entity that they were thinking of when they talked like that. But here, you will notice that God is going to wipe away tears from our eyes. I don't think the Apostle John, when he writes that of God, means uh, our spiritual eyes. I don't think that's what he means at all. I think he means our physical eyes. And the reason I say that is because he talks about physical things like pain and sorrow and crying. No more any of that, right? No more this sorrow and crying which we experience in our physical bodies. So the idea that the Apostle John reveals in Revelation 21 is that there is, yes, life after death in heaven, but it would appear that it is life in a new body or a body in heaven. And the Apostle John, uh, sorry, the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing with these subjects. We know in this passage that he, he deals with the resurrection of the dead, that all the dead rise. That's a doctrine of the Bible. Not only the resurrection of the dead, but the resurrection of those who have died have a resurrection body, a new body. So these are the things that he's unfolding to us. And he predicates all the 
the future resurrection of the dead and their new body simply on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. So how significant is the resurrection of Jesus? Very, very important for us to grasp and to understand. Everything that God does, we know, is for His glory. God never acts apart from Himself and His glory. Whatever God says, whatever God does, whatever God has revealed in the Scriptures are all designed by God to bring Him the ultimate glory and the ultimate pleasure. That God is going to exalt Himself and be glorified in that. We know that in the salvation of sinners, our salvation, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and He has saved us if we have come to Him in repentance and faith and trusted his, Him and His work for us on the cross. We know that in the saving of our souls, in the salvation of sinners, that there is a great change that took place in us. We went from darkness to light. We went from spiritually being dead to these things. We didn't understand them, couldn't comprehend them to suddenly being able to see the reality and the truth of the gospel. We went from darkness to light, death to life. A great change has taken place. That great change, the saving of sinners, is for the glory of God. Because God gets glorified in accomplishing our salvation. But not only in saving us, which we experienced this morning, if we are Christians, but in the promise to us, that in the future, there's going to be a change to us. That something is going to happen to us in the future. We know we're going to die because that's the consequence of Adam's sin and our sin. We know that we're going to end up in the grave. The body is going to end up in the grave. But we know that, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the body may remain in the tomb, but the person their soul, their spirit is with the Lord until that resurrection day. When soul and spirit or the soul is rejoined to that body that Jesus brings out of the graves. And the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, that there's going to be a, a general resurrection of all the dead, some to life and some to judgment. But in all cases, to life or to judgment, a body is granted to them. And this is, this is, these are the things the Apostle is thinking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he wants us to know uh, in this passage that, that God is everything. God is all in all. That what God is doing and going to do with regard to the resurrection of the dead is so that He gets the praise and He gets the glory. So in the great change that is coming for you and me in resurrection, God gets the glory. God gets the praise. And as the Apostle reminds us, that God might be all in all. Verse 28. What does resurrection mean? If you look at the word in the New Testament, the word resurrection simply means life out from among the dead. So life again. Right? That there is someone who has died and then lives again. And the example of that is there you find these examples of people who, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, raised by Jesus, but raised to life, but they died again. But not Jesus, right? 
He lives in the power of an indestructible, endless life, an eternal life, because He has risen from the dead, He has conquered sin, He has conquered death, and He lives in the power of Himself endlessly. That's resurrection life. And He lives in His body, a glorified resurrection body, which is going to be granted to us, a body like unto His own glorious body when He comes again. All so that we will be like Him, and all so that God will be everything. God will be all in all. So this idea of resurrection, or the doctrine of resurrection, is just simply life again from the dead. It includes, then, life after death. Because if we talk about a new body in the resurrection, we mean that life continues, not in a spiritual uh, soul-spirit entity, but in the soul-body connection as we experience now, except on a new dimension, a new domain, a new way, a resurrection life, a glorified life. So when a believer, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ dies. What do I mean by that? Someone who confesses and professes that Jesus is their Savior and is their Lord and has experienced the new birth and is changed within themselves and knows that. They know, we know, when we die, the body is laid in the grave. Now, what happens if you get blown up in war? Well, that's no problem to God because the body, wherever it might be, and of course, bodies over the centuries have gone back to dust. To dust they've they came, and to dust they shall return. God is able on that great resurrection day to gather all of those things together in an instant and bring life again to those bodies, bringing them all together and composing them as they are in their bodies, except they are now resurrection bodies, which has spiritual consequences. You all live this morning in your body. It has physical connections. Physical consequences. Some of you have more pain than others. That's natural. That's normal because we're in this body and because of sin. We experience pain. We experience suffer. These are the experiences of life. We experience them in the body. But in the experience of them in the body, we also touch the spiritual. We feel something. As believers, we connect all the physical sufferings, all the pains that we, we have, we connect them to life in Christ. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. It's not that we desire to suffer, but we recognize that if we do suffer and are called upon to suffer, that we can rejoice in the midst of those sufferings because of what Christ has done. And that is because we have new life, we have new hope through salvation. It's all going to come together in resurrection. Also, that God will be all in all. I like that. Because this is not a gospel or a salvation about us, about man. That we get the central glory in heaven. That Jesus will say, well, look, look at all these people and look what they've done. They've believed. No, not that at all. But that in glory we shall ascribe to God all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. That's what Paul means here when he says that God may be all in all. That God may be everything. You'll notice that Paul uses the language of fallen asleep, right? He talks about those who have fallen asleep. This is simply a term in the New Testament to describe those who have died. And particularly, he doesn't mean everybody who's died, but believers who have died. They have fallen asleep in Christ. 
And we often use at funerals that kind of phrase for a Christian who has died. They have simply fallen asleep in Christ. Their bodies now are in the grave, but they are immediately in the spirit, in the soul with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing that is for a Christian, right? Who has died immediately with Christ, immediately with the Lord. And there are people that may mourn not understanding the gospel, seeing that there is there's no hope, there's no reason, but not for the believer. For us there is this beautiful hope that we have because Jesus himself conquered death, rose from the dead. So, people in the tombs, in the graves, remain there until Jesus comes. When Jesus comes again in great power and glory, he will bring our spirits and our souls, those who have gone to be with him, he will bring them back and they will be reunited with the bodies that he raises out of the grave. But until that time, they remain their bodies in the grave. Now, this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, right, is the preeminent passage in the Bible on this doctrine, the subject of resurrection. If you want to understand the, the doctrine of the resurrection, what that means for Christ, what that means for you, for everybody, and what that means about the body, then this is the passage to consider, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it is comprehensive, right? So if you look at the passage, you'll notice first of all in verses 1 through 11 that he starts at the right place. He starts with the resurrection of Jesus. Now if Jesus is not raised from the dead, there's nothing. There's no Christianity. There's no gospel. There's no grace. There's no hope. There's no future. There's nothing. There's no forgiveness of sins. And the apostle has used those arguments, hasn't he? If Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. Preaching is futile. God has been misrepresented by us. Uh, our faith is vain. And all of these arguments that he uses if Jesus is not risen from the dead. So the first thing the apostle does is to establish the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 1 through 11. Second, last week, we considered together, you remember verses 12 through 19, which is part from verse 12 through verse 34 of the resurrection of the body. So we're still in verses 12 through 34, which deal secondly with the resurrection of the dead, I should say, the resurrection of the dead. Then, in verse 35 through verse 49, the apostle is going to talk about the body, the resurrection of the body. So Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, and then the resurrection of the body. And he's going to end the passage, conclude 1 Corinthians 15, with implications and responsibilities for you as a Christian and for me. Verses 50 through 58. So we're in this section, the resurrection of the dead. Paul's unfolding these things. And what Paul does in verses 12 through 34 is just unfold argument after argument, establishing the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And I, as I said, he began in, chapter, in, in verses 1 through 11 with Jesus' resurrection, so he starts with a historical argument. Jesus rose from the dead. So the historical argument about Jesus rising from the dead is established on two facts. The first fact is that the Bible, the Old Testament, foretold that Jesus would rise from the dead. 
So that, that's the first fact in the historical argument about Jesus' resurrection. The scriptures spoke of it. That's the first thing. The second proof or fact that historically Paul gives is that he says there were witnesses. And he includes himself. I saw the risen Christ. So all the disciples, those women at the tomb saw Jesus alive from the dead on the third day, raised to new life. They saw Christ risen from the dead. So the scriptures foretold it and the witnesses saw it and that establishes the historical doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, verses 1 through 11. Now last week, we looked at another argument which begins now the arguments concerning the resurrection of the dead. And that argument that the Apostle gave us in verses 12 through 19, we saw was a very clear, a very cogent, a very coherent, compelling, logical argument. So he just deduces fact after fact, or from fact to this fact to the next fact, as he goes one from the other. And those logical arguments that the Apostle brings in verses 12 through 19 are to establish that because Jesus is risen from the dead, the dead themselves shall be raised. And not only that, but because the dead are raised, that means Jesus, who died, has also been raised. Very powerful, very logical argument that connects the resurrection of Jesus with our future resurrection or the resurrection of all the dead in that future day when Jesus comes. Now let me remind you, this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is structured around two questions. The first question is verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's his question. It's the first question. So from verse 12 through verse 34, Paul is answering that question. How can some of you say there is no, no resurrection? Here's my proof. Not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but there's this logical argument that he gave, as we saw last week in verses 12 through 19. But now this morning, he's going to change that and give us some theological arguments to prove that Jesus is risen from the dead, and therefore you and I, ourselves, shall rise from the dead. So this is the first question. You'll notice the second question, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Or, similar question, with what kind of body do they come? That's the second question. That begins the new section, verse 35 to 49, about the resurrection of the body. Remember, we are in the section, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 35, the second question, will talk about what kind of bodies do we get when the resurrection takes place. So Paul is answering these questions that have been raised, verse 12 and verse 35, as we shall see throughout the whole passage. So let's talk a little bit about this argument that he gives us, verse 20 through verse 28. Not only do we have a historical argument, not only do we have a logical argument, but we have, as I said, a theological argument now in verses 20 through 28. You know the interesting thing about theology, and anybody who studies theology, you soon discover that theology is always consequential. It always goes somewhere. Not only is it consequential, but it's also oftentimes very sequential, that it follows an order, it follows a pattern. You go from one doctrine to the next if you study systematic theology, for example. 
The doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of angels, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of future things. These are doctrines. You move from the one to the next. So all theology is patterned like that. It has consequences and it has sequences. And that is what Paul is doing in his theological argument. He is moving consequentially and sequentially from one statement to the next, having established his logical argument based on his historical argument that Jesus is actually risen from the dead. So he moves from one fact, one truth to the next. So notice, will you, with me in verse 20. He begins with a statement, doesn't he? This verse 20 is really the conclusion to what he's just said, verses 12 through 19. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's your statement. Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. There's no debate about it now. I've dealt with the objections. I've put them, aside. I've put them away. They're, they're overcome any objections anybody has to Jesus being alive. I've dealt with that. Any objection to understanding that there is such a thing as a resurrection of the dead, I've dealt with that in the previous verses. And then this verse is the conclusion to that. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, you know, if you look at verses 12 through 19, there are a lot of if statements. If this, then that. If this, then that. In fact, in every verse from 12 through 19, except verse 18, you'll find an if clause or a conditional clause. Paul is not interested anymore in conditions or conditional clauses. If this, then that. If this, then that. He has proven that because these things happen, that has happened. Now, he's going to shift from the improbable, the uncertainty of conditional sentences, which he has used in his logical argument to prove that Jesus has risen from the dead and that the dead will rise. Now he gives us strong, conclusive statements of fact. So what is the fact in verse 20? The fact is Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact. That's the fact. And it's done, Paul says, there's no more debate about it because I've just proved it from the historical argument, 1 through 11, and the logical argument in verses 12 through 19. No more debate in the light of that. So Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, getting to Jesus is raised from the dead allows Paul to go forward. To go forward and then to develop later on his argument about the resurrection body that we shall have. And so Paul's point in verse 20 is to conclude and to do away with the conclusion that some might have from verse 19. Look at verse 19. If, notice the if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, what a waste. If that's what it's all about, this life only, if that's all Jesus has accomplished, then sorry, that's not where it ends, Paul says. There's more to life than this life. That's verse 19, right? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we have all people most to be pitied. Because what we're essentially saying is, there's no future life. But that's not what Paul said. And that's not what Paul has proven. So, verse 20 just deals with that negative aspect if this is all you think life is no paul says why no because jesus has been raised from the dead therefore there are certain things that happen in the future so our hope dear congregation 
Your hope and my hope this morning is not just in this life. If it were just in this life, you might as well go out there and live like a pagan. You might as well do whatever you please, enjoy your life, run it to rack and ruin, be a gangster, do whatever you want to do, because it doesn't matter. Paul says, that's not what it is. It matters, right? Because that's not what this is all about, just this life. No, hope in Jesus, belief in Jesus, trusting Christ is not just for today and tomorrow, but for glory, for eternity. That's what, what, what is it that assures me that it's for eternity? Jesus rose from the dead. That's what proves it. It's not just for this life. No, but in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. So my hope is not in this life. In fact, it is a very definite hope that I have, and you have, a very strong hope in the life to come because Jesus Himself is alive and is risen from the dead. It's Jesus who has secured the hope, isn't it? How did He secure our hope for the future? By Him rising, Himself rising from the dead. So Jesus rising from the dead is not just in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures that promised that He would, but it is to secure for you and me a future, an eternal future, that is riveted to Christ's life, life from the dead. It's a marvelous argument, isn't it, that Paul gives to us as Christians. This is to strengthen your hope. This is to encourage you as a Christian. This is to point out that this, this gospel that we say we believe is actually true. And these are the arguments that he's used for it. Now notice in verse 20 that Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. Notice also he says the same in verse 23, Christ the first fruits. What is that word first fruits? Why does he use that? Christ is the first fruits. Well, it is an Old Testament text or a word from the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus 23 and Leviticus chapter 23, where you Finally get in the land, God says to the, to the children of Israel, and you plant the crops. The very first taking of the crops you give to me. It's not so much about the order that these are the very first and the rest don't matter, but it's because they are the first that the rest do matter. That what follows is pledged on the basis of what is first taken. So when Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those that slept, it's not that he's the first one who died and the first one who rose again, because actually there have been other resurrections before Jesus, except they died again. But the concept of resurrection has taken place. No, it's not about being first in order, but it is about pledging that you and I, since he himself has gone through death and has been raised from the dead, I too, in a sequence shall be raised to life. So you will notice, for instance, verse 23 says, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, which promises our resurrection, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then sequentially comes the end, and so on. So the first fruits, the first fruit of production, your oil, your grain, your, your wine, it had to be given to God. Did you know that as a Christian, we are said to be, in Romans 8, verse 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. 
What does Paul mean by that? The first fruits of the Spirit. He means that he is pointing to the anticipation of being changed. We are in a process of being changed, right? So the process has begun, but there is development in the process. So you first trust Jesus Christ, you first become a believer, and you experience this incredible change, but then you begin to practice the change. You begin to live the change. So the first fruits is when you initially have the Spirit of God, but you still have the Spirit of God as you work your way through sanctification as a result of your salvation. Your sanctification, your being changed, being conformed, being made holy, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that anticipation, you are the first fruits of the Spirit, points to our hope, doesn't it, that the Spirit of God is going to help us in the change to, to, until we get to glory and we are all truly conformed to the likeness and the image of Jesus. Isn't that Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21? That we have this, this hope that we are, that when we see Jesus, who comes again from heaven, we shall be transformed, like, have a body like unto His own glorious body. Doesn't John hint at that when he says that this is our hope, that Jesus shall come for us and we purify ourselves as a result of the anticipation that, of the hope that we have when Jesus comes. So in verse 20 and then in verse 23, Christ is the first fruits. Paul doesn't mean that Jesus' resurrection would precede the resurrection of his people, which it does anyway. But that's not what he's referring to. He's not referring to the order, but he means that because Jesus rose, you will rise. It is going to happen. It is a pledge. It is a promise to gather in the whole harvest of all of his people when he himself comes. Even of these Corinthians, in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul means the Corinthian believers, some of them have died already. They've, they've fallen asleep. They have died. They are secure in being resurrected because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So Jesus is the pledge, if you like. He's the proof that you will be raised from the dead. So we can say, my resurrection is a consequence of Jesus' resurrection, right? That's what Paul's weaving throughout of all of this. And notice how he illustrates it, right? In verse 20, uh, how he illustrates verse 20 in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's he talking about? I mean, that's theology, right? That's the theology, the doctrines of sin and salvation. That in one man we all die, but in another man we live. So verse 21 is a general statement, right? If you're in Adam, you perish, you die. If you're in Christ, you live. It's just a general statement. By one man came death, by another man, meaning Jesus, came life. It's a general statement. But verse 22 is the theology that you read about in Romans chapter 5, passage we read, Romans 5 verses 1 through 11, but the passage Paul's thinking about is Romans 5 verses 12 through 19. Might be helpful, I think, for us to read that. So let's turn back to Romans chapter, five, uh, Romans chapter 5, just for a moment, and look at some of these verses, what Paul says, and then you'll be able to see the connection with 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians, uh, sorry, Romans 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now how do you know there was sin in the world before the law came? Because they died, right? They died. That's the consequence of sin. Yet death, verse 14, reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, that's Adam's sin, right? The judgment that came upon Adam brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trans trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life <coughs> excuse me, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, when you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Where does that thinking come from? It's from Romans 5, right? That's the theology of it. It's right there in Romans 5. You can see that as a result of Adam's sin, death came to all of us. We all die because of Adam's sin. But Jesus' sacrifice brings life to us. Now, I want you to notice the alls, right? So, as in Adam, verse 22, all die, so too, or so also, in Christ shall all be made alive. There's no question the all in Adam... Verse 22 is universal, right? So as in Adam, all die. Every single human being dies. Now, you could say, because we know it's true, that there is a resurrection of all to come. That in verse 22 it says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. But whenever Paul uses in Christ or in Him, he's referring to believers. And in the context, he's talking about the first fruits, Jesus, and those who have fallen asleep, meaning believers who have fallen asleep in Christ. So to me, the all in Jesus, the second all, is special, is particular. How do I know that? Because of those who perish. Not all are made alive spiritually. Only believers are made alive spiritually. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. Not only that, but you'll notice in verse 23 that coming into that, out of the, the theology of 22, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ, who are they? They're believers, right? They're Christians. So I take 
uh, in Christ shall all be made alive as to be particular, that all who are in Christ are actually going to be raised from the dead. Now, if you want to see a universal application in that, that all men shall be raised from the dead, that is true. We don't deny it at all. It is absolutely true. But in Romans 5, Paul says the free gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds for the many. The many. And the free gift, he says, is not like that one man's sin which brought death to all, to everyone. Not to many, but to every single human being, to every single person. Romans 5, 15 and 16. And I think Paul's just taking the Romans 5 understanding and putting it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And notice the sequence of events, right? Verse 23. But each in his own order. So as a result of what Jesus has done, there's going to be a sequential order to the resurrection or to what happens in the future. And what are those? What are these sequences? In verse 23, there are three of them, right? Or there are two, and then the third is in verse 24. So notice, first of all, Christ the firstfruits. Then, verse 23, at His coming, those who belong to Him, to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end. Those are the three sequential things that take place, right? The order, as Paul says in verse 23, first Christ, then at His coming, those who belong to Him, believers, and verse 24, and then comes the end. Now here's what I want you to see. In verse 23, Jesus is the Savior who saves us. But in verse 24... Jesus is the sovereign who destroys. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. So Jesus is our Savior. And yes, we confess Jesus is our sovereign. There's no doubt about it. But He is not Savior to the wicked, to the unbelieving he is only Savior to those who belong to Him, but He is sovereign over all. And all answer to Christ, right? There's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow before Jesus and is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is exactly the argument that Paul says here, that God may be all in all, or God may be everything. Now, I want you to also notice, look at verse 24, then comes the end. The end only comes after the Lord Jesus has destroyed every rule, authority, and power. Notice the text. Then comes the end, statement, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When does He do that? At the end. So at the end, He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, but He does it after, look at the text, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So I ask myself the question, what is the end when this happens? Isn't the end what John sees in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And those who belong in the new heavens and the new earth are those who are in this relationship with Christ. God says, I'll be your God and you shall be my people. And God himself will wipe from their eyes every tear. And there shall be no more mourning, suffering, crying, pain, and so on. Right? That's the end when that takes place. So notice that the coming of Jesus, verse 23... 
Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, so Paul tells us Jesus is coming, and that is coming, there's going to be a resurrection of those who belong to Jesus. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, right? That the dead shall rise first, the dead in Christ. And we, if we are still alive, shall be caught up together with those dead raised first to be with the Lord. So what about our resurrection? If the dead in Christ are come out of the graves and they are changed, resurrection, what happens to us? In the catching up to be with Christ, we are changed. We experience like a living resurrection. But do you know that resurrection is interesting? Because resurrection requires death. You can't have resurrection unless you die. So in the catching up, like Elijah being caught up to God in the whirlwind, like Enoch being taken to God forever to be with God, there has to be in the catching away a death and a resurrection that instantaneously takes place by the power of Jesus who comes. It's beautiful. So that we are changed. So that we experience a resurrection body change. And those who come out of the tombs or the graves themselves experience the resurrection of the body because Jesus comes back with them, 1 Thessalonians 4, in their souls, joins them to their bodies. But we who are alive and remain, we are caught up and we shall be changed. And as Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So, it's not the end when Jesus comes, okay? But it starts the process as Paul outlines verses 24 through 28. And this entire sequence and process is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. So notice verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. He only delivers the kingdom to God, notice verse 24, after destroying Every rule, every kingdom, I mean every authority and every power. So after Jesus destroys all opposition, He then takes what is left, what He has done, and gives it to God. So when does He do that? Right? When does Jesus do that? He does that when He comes, when He delivers up this kingdom and all authority, then comes the end. But notice in verse 25 that Paul comes back to the present. Okay, that's the future sequence. He's given it to us. It's quite simple. Christ first, we who believe raised, then comes the end when Jesus does all of these things, right? But notice, he comes back to the present in verse 25 when he says, for he must reign. He's not talking about he must reign when he does that. No, Jesus is already reigning right now. He is the king. Right now. How do I know Jesus is the king? Because that's part of his mediatorial office in the covenant that he made between father and son that who shall go for us? I will go. I will save them. And in the coming of that, Jesus undertakes for us in his office as mediator, prophet, priest, and king. It's not as if Jesus is prophet and then he becomes a priest and then he becomes a king. No, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Always now. So, it says here, he must reign, and notice the text, until. Notice, he must reign until, which means he is reigning until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. So this is a process. That Jesus is reigning, and in his reign, he is overcoming his enemies one by one by one until he gets to the end. 
Notice that this is also the fulfillment, by the way, of the very famous Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now how is that possible? Sit at my right hand. What does that mean? Is Jesus at the right hand of God right now? Yes. And what's He doing there? Reigning. He is reigning in the sense that He is putting all of His enemies under His feet. He must reign until He has done all of that. And when Jesus has done all of that, then He shall give everything to God the Father. Everything. So that God will be everything and be all in all. So verse 25 tells us what Jesus is doing today. Right now. Right? He's reigning and ruling. And as He reigns, His enemies are being overcome one by one. And when they're all overcome, then comes the end. When He destroys all rules, all authority, all power. Now, as a Christian, let me ask you, how does Jesus reign over you? Isn't He your sovereign? Isn't He your King? Do you not bow the knee to Jesus already? When you bow the knee, you are acknowledging that He is your King. He is Lord. He is sovereign. So He reigns as our King over us. He reigns as our King in us. He reigns as our King through us. Because the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom here and now, and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, is the means whereby enemies are overcome. Remember, we were ourselves at one time enemies. Romans 5. But no longer, because we've been reconciled by God to Himself. So that Jesus has been doing this work of saving sinners and of confirming the wicked, the unbelieving, those who will not repent, confirming them in their sin and overcoming them one by one until one day every knee shall bow before Jesus when He comes in His great glory and His power. And guess what? The best is for last in one sense. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. 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 The last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26, he must reign. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Didn't Revelation 21, 4 say, and death shall be no more. No more death. Think about it. We have death all around us in the world today. People dying right now, today, around the world, everywhere. Not only in hospitals, but, but, but out there on the roads. In their homes, people dying, 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 death everywhere, right? Why? Because of sin, right? We're all sinners. We die as a consequence. But one day, because of Jesus and His power over death and sin, no more death. Taken away, right? We shall all have been delivered from sins cursed when the death is gone. Oh, praise God for that, right? But the wicked shall answer for the curse of sin. Now you know, dear congregation, we say, because the Bible tells us, Galatians 3, that Jesus became a curse for us. Right? He became a curse to save us. And now Jesus reigns over His people as their pledge, as their promised Savior and Lord, but He reigns over His enemies as their sovereign God. That's what's happening because Jesus rose from the dead. This whole process has started because Jesus came out of the tomb on the third day. This is not some fanciful religion. This is not some hypothetical feel-good religion, right? 
this, is, this makes perfect sense. How can anybody sit and listen to the gospel, to what God says through Paul in his word, and then walk out and say, no. Well, let me ask you, what have you got in, in return? What have you got to put in its place? What does the world have to put in its place? They've got nothing. They've got nothing. Have you ever noticed that the world, when they talk about the dead, well, I hope they're looking down from above. What kind of theology is that? Right? Where do they get that from? What's their authority for saying that? Well, in some vague way, their authority is actually the Bible. But that's not what we say. We don't say we're looking down from above and looking. No. We reign with Christ, who is putting his enemies under his feet, and will continue to do so until he comes in great glory and power, right? So the victory of Jesus over sin and over death took place at the cross, right? But it was the empty tomb that sealed that, guaranteed victory over sin and death. So the resurrection of Jesus secures, right, this victory of Christ. Paul tells Timothy that death has lost its power. 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. In fact, in verse 55 of chapter 15 here, he says, death has lost its sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? Gone. The last enemy that will be destroyed is going to be death. Now, let me ask you, how do you destroy death? It's a good question, right? How do you destroy death? Well, I'll tell you how. Since Jesus is going to do it, you have to die yourself first. And then you have to rise from the dead. That's how you destroy death. You not only die, but you rise from the dead. So Jesus dies and rises from the dead and death is done. Isn't that what we like to refer to, like the Puritans do, right? That in the death of Christ, there is the death of death. The death of death. No more death, right? So the exalted, risen Lord Jesus Christ is one day just simply going to remove death. It's gone. It's destroyed. It will, be, it, it will be so because it's already broken. It's already defeated by the cross at Calvary. But it shall be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Jesus says. Now listen to the Apostle John in Revelation 20, verse 14. Death and Hades, or hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's what the unbeliever gets. That shocking end, right? Death, now listen, here's the thing. For the unbeliever, death is not destroyed in that sense. Because they live in a present death-like living experience in the lake of fire. So that for the unbelieving, there is this horrible double consequence. Death and Hades into hell, into the lake of fire. Unbelievers into the lake of fire. The second death. But the second death is not annihilation. The second death is a living death forever and forever and forever. One day, Robert Murray McShane was out riding his horse, and he met his good friend, Andrew Bonar, riding his horse the other way, coming, they met together, and they're both ministers and preachers, and so McShane said to Andrew Bonar, what did you preach on on Sunday? And Andrew Bonar said, I preached on hell. And Robert Murray McShane says, I hope you preached it with tenderness. 
Because it's so frightful, this doctrine. Isn't it? Isn't it glorious that Jesus has saved us by grace, which salvation was a deliverance from a living death, a living hell, this life, now. But He has saved us in this life to save us forever. But not the unbelieving. The unbelieving must still face the consequences of their guilt and their sin and their curse upon them. And that takes place when Jesus takes them and at the great judgment throne says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And he casts them into the lake of fire where death is itself. It was a frightful thing. It's a frightful thing. Shouldn't that make us compassionate to the lost? When you work with them every day and you see that they're lost, they have no hope, no understanding. We should be compassionate, right? So William Romaine, one of the Puritans, he says, death stung itself to death when it stung Christ. It's Jesus who killed death for us so that we might have life. Not just life like now, but eternal life. Life with Him, guaranteed in the future day. And all things are in the process of being made subject to the Son of God. Isn't that what the text says? Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. They're all been the enemies, everything, all rule, all authority has been put into subjection to Jesus Christ. And verse 27 is from the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 8, right? Which is all about the universal sovereign dominion of the Son of Man, who is, of course, none other than the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has universal dominion. That's what he has in 1 Corinthians 15. Sovereign dominion. Everything subject to him, right? And Jesus, I want you to notice this, does not subject Himself to God the Father in verse 28 because He is less than God the Father. You know, because verse 28 says, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subjected to God or to Him who put all things in subjection to Him. Jesus does not subject Himself to the Father because He's less than the Father as if there is in His essence some essential subordination. That's not true at all. No, Jesus and the Father are one. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son of God is one. They're equal, and so on. So how, does, how do you explain verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subject to God? Well, it's a functional subordination, right? That has been willingly taken by the Son of God when He became the Son of Man, when He took to Himself humanity. He placed Himself under the authority of the Father. And He did it for us. He did it for us. So that the result of what Jesus has done, here's the result, I like this, is that God will never ever again be threatened. God will never ever be disobeyed again. Not when Jesus has destroyed everything, brings all rule, all authority to the Father, everything subject to Him. Never again will God be threatened. Never again will God be disobeyed. No, God's dominion will be absolute. God will be everything. God will be supreme. Now what does that mean for you and for me this morning, right? That's the question. If that's true, if God is all in all, God is everything, what does it mean for me, right? How can I, how can I grapple with that? Well, here, let me give you four ways and we're done. Number one, we should give thanks that the end is for the glory of God. That where all of this is going is so that God gets the glory, right? 
We should give thanks for that. I mean, that's what Jesus is occupied with. He started it when He came in His incarnation. Well, we can even go back. Started it in eternity, right? When He compacted with the Father, I will go and I will become man and I will save them. The people that you've given me. I will save them from their sins. So, in all of His work of creation and redemption and judgment and the future, it's Jesus so that God gets the glory. Number two, the enemies of God never win. They do not win because Jesus won the victory at the cross over sin and death. So in time, you believe, today, tomorrow, yesterday, whenever it was you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus won the victory at the cross. And Jesus continues to save sinners, doesn't He? The Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption in time to each of uh, these people that are being saved. And His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, guarantees their salvation. If Jesus is not alive, we're not saved. In fact, that's not going to happen in the future. If Jesus is not alive, none of it's going to happen. So you see what a foolish argument to raise and say, well, I don't believe in resurrection. But look at all the arguments Paul has given. How are you going to argue against them? Thirdly, we should live holy lives, right? Sanctified lives, changed lives. You see, this life is just a preparation for the next. That's all it is. A preparation in which you are being conformed now to the likeness of Christ so that one day you will be permanently conformed to the image of Christ. This life is a preparation for what is to come. The unbelieving are preparing themselves for what is to come. The lake of fire. But the believer is being prepared by God the Holy Spirit to be like the Son of God forever. What a hope that is. Right? We should live holy lives. Jonathan Edwards said that the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. It's true. Number four. Pray that God will help you prepare. Now don't take it lightly. Get serious about the end. Pray that God will prepare you for the ultimate end when God Himself will be everything. Praise God for that. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank You for Your Word which You've given to us, this Word of the Apostle that he wrote so long ago for the Corinthian church who was struggling with some of these issues about the resurrection of the dead. Now we have seen so eloquently again from this passage how Paul proves the resurrection of Jesus and therefore our resurrection is certain and guaranteed. So prepare us, we pray, for eternal life. Now, prepare us by changing us, saving us, sanctifying us today so that we can be ready to enter into the glorious kingdom of the Son of God. We shall hand everything to the Father so that God Himself is all in all. We worship You then, Father, this morning for who You are, for Your glory, and we worship You for Your Son and for this whole plan of salvation. We praise You and thank You. Help us to repent of our sins. Help us to live serious in the light of these truths, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray.